all year, the core doctrines and verses in, in the Bible that build us up and strengthen us and transform us, literally. As I thought about the topic today, which is faith, one phrase kept running through my mind, kind of unbidden. It's not something I think about very often or very much. But the phrase that kept running through my mind was uh, semper fidelis. Anybody here know about semper fidelis? Oh, Andy's got his hand up first. There's another uh, of the brotherhood in the back. Semper fidelis, it's Latin. It means always faithful or always loyal. It has been the... um, the, uh, the motto of the United States Marine Corps, or as I like to tease Andy and call them, uh, Uncle Sam's misguided children, uh, has been their motto since 1883. And if there was anything, at least in my mind, that defines, and I never was a Marine, but if there's anything in my mind as someone who's known many Marines over the years and observed them and learned about them, the, the, the thing that sets them apart um, and makes them somewhat unique in, in, uh, in the military and no disrespect to any other branch, but it's this, this rock-solid fundamental belief that they are always faithful, ever true to their mission, to their uh, cause, to their teammates, their, their unit, their uh, brothers and sisters in uniform, and it, and it makes them uh, a powerful, powerful force to reckon with. And so that's what keeps coming through my mind as I think about faith. And in every Marine I've ever known, and there are no former Marines, right, Andy? Um, there are no former Marines, but every Marine I've ever known has lived up to that and maintained that commitment regardless of however long that they have been out of uniform. And I bring that up to suggest to you this morning that that kind of loyalty, commitment, fidelity is worthy of emulation. It's worthy of you and I taking a moment and considering it and recognizing that that is something of value, that that coherence that it creates in the unit, in the team, in the, in the whole branch of the military and makes it powerful in ways that exceed its size are, are worth our observation and for us to consider how that could be utilized even within in our own lives. Now, don't hit me, guys, but the Marines weren't the first to come up with this idea. They weren't the first ones to come up with Cipro Fidelis as a motto. In fact, you can look on Wikipedia and find out that lots and lots of military and even towns and even universities have used it as their motto for a thousand years. But its idea, the concept of it, the heart of it, goes back even much, much, much further than that. The Marine Corps weren't the first to discover this critical value of fidelity to the team and to the values that it holds. In fact, it's in the Bible. If you look in your Bible, in Luke chapter 7, you find another soldier, a Roman soldier, a centurion, in fact, who has this very same concept, if not the words, the concept at least, of semper fidelis, excuse me. And he uses it, and we see it in Luke 7, when he calls on this Jewish rabbi, a guy named Jesus, to come to him to come and try and attempt to heal a servant of his who is fatally ill. 
So let's look at that story for just a minute because I want to take these two and then meld them together and bring us forward from there. From Luke chapter 7, uh, beginning in, in, uh, in verse 1, Jesus had been preaching and he goes back to Capernaum, which is sort of the hometown where he was basing his ministry out of. And the Bible tells us at that time, uh, the highly valued... I'm, Nate, I'm going to probably have to ask you to run those for me because this isn't moving it. Uh, at that time, the highly valued servant of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So let's hold on there just a second. Let's kind of get our context a little bit. Roman soldier, Roman centurion, a leader of men has a a servant, a slave, who is desperately ill. He calls on the the elders in the town of Capernaum, there where he is, and he asks them, I hear about Jesus, would you ask him to come? He uses some intermediaries, so to speak, to approach Jesus. And so, would you please ask him to come and heal my servants? So, these these town leaders, these these people in verse 4 say, they earnestly beg Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help... He does, they said, and here's why. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. Now, this is an amazing story for a lot of reasons, not least of the social and political and cultural implications. Here is a a soldier, a leader of men in the occupying Roman army over Israel, which is not a happy thing if you're a Jewish person of the day. They were hated by and large, with apparently the exception of this guy who had discovered the concept also of hearts and minds way before we ever applied that in the Middle East. And he had built these relationships with the people in his community to the point that they were willing to even offer their help to him. So this is an amazing story just on the basis of the culture and the politics and the society of the time. But it gets even more amazing when you uncover that there's a spiritual aspect to it. In verse 6, it says, So Jesus went with them. But before he, they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my house, for I am not worthy of such an honor. In fact, verse 7, I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, my servant will be healed. We're starting to uncover some information, some implications about this pagan Roman. He's not a a believer. He's not a proselyte or a convert to Judaism as far as we know. But he knows something about Jesus. And he knows something based on what he'd heard, maybe even things he'd seen of Jesus, that he's willing to put a lot of faith in him. And he describes it, explains it this way. Here's what he says in verse 8. He says, I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they what? They, right, or come and they come. Or if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. Now, this guy took his own experience of having people over him who could order him to do some things and he would fulfill those orders or in his own experience as a leader of people, that if he told them this is what needs to happen, he could expect that to happen. It's the concept of authority and, and being faithful to that or loyal to that. He says, I get that. He says, so here's what I know, this is implied in this, here's what I know about you. 
And that is, is that you have an authority that I can't even begin to understand. And your authority is such that if you say go or come, or if you say be healed, it happens. I get it from my own experience. I apply my experience to you, and I believe this to be true. You don't even have to show up at my house. I know it will be done. Semper Fidelis, indeed. Jesus turns to the audience, the Jewish people who were with him, his disciples and the townspeople and the leaders, and he makes a statement about this. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Now think about what he just said and who he said it to. He just compared everybody who's ever been Jewish, ever been one of the chosen people of God, full of the promises of God, and rehearsing over and over and over again on their holidays, and literally every day, the blessings and the the presence of God and the purposes of God in their lives and their acknowledgement that He is their God and they are His people. Here, O Israel, our Lord, our, our our God is one God. With all of that faith, with all of that going in them to, into them in their lives, Jesus says, here's this pagan Roman soldier who's expressed more faith than anybody I've ever seen. It's kind of a little bit of a straighten you up and make you think a little bit statement. But this guy has taken his understanding of authority and Jesus as, a, as the Lord and placed his faith into it and said, I believe you'll do what you say you'll do. And the Bible goes on to say that in fact that's exactly what happened. The man was healed. So what do we do with faith? What do we do with a statement like, I've never seen faith like this in all Israel? What do we even mean when we talk about faith? What do we mean when we're asked to believe or to have faith in Jesus. Or when we, when we have the opportunity to talk to other people, suggest to them that agreeing that faith in Christ is salvation. What do we even mean when we, when we say, have faith? What does that look like? Is it agreeing on some statements about Jesus? Is it reading a set of beliefs and saying, okay? So my suggestion to you this morning is that the motto of the United States Marine Corps and the example of a Roman centurion point us in the right direction on what we mean when we talk about faith. You see, faith is belief plus. And here's why I say that. At times, faith simply equals belief, particularly in the world we live in. In our world, belief is often reduced to a rational recognition of a set of facts, I believe that this is true, therefore I read these facts, I believe they're true, therefore that is belief, that we kind of limit that. In a spiritual context, in the church context, those sets of facts that we state, and we should state often and loudly in fact, are that Jesus of Nazareth was the literal embodiment of God, the Son of God, begotten of God, that he died on a cross, was buried in a tomb for three days, and rose from the dead to eternal life. Those are facts. They are true. They form the foundation, the core of our beliefs about Jesus. But just because we say those things are true, 
just because we say those facts are real doesn't always result always in transformation. Any more than believing the facts, you can read all of the, all of the science on it, that the fact is that airplanes lift off the ground and fly. But if you won't get on an airplane, then do we really believe? Think about that for a minute. Belief does not necessarily result in transformation. So on the one hand, there is this idea that belief is essentially a rational experience or a rational uh, observation of a certain set of facts and agreeing to them, which don't necessarily lead to transformation. Way over on the other extreme is the idea that faith is essentially experience. That faith is primarily what we experience, we believe in, we have faith in the things that we have seen and felt ourselves, that we have apprehended with our senses. We have been literally feel, taste, touch, smell, hear, whatever it is, and our faith is based on those things. That's a form, if you will, of existentialism. That's a form of, 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 of just, I exist because I have experienced these things. Now, Neither one of these extremes, either rationalism or existentialism, match biblical faith. Neither one of those really works. If you're being rational about it, only strictly rational about it, like Spock, okay? Y'all didn't, okay, never mind. If we're being really rational about it, then what happens is, is logic carries us to a certain point, and beyond that is a transcendent God that defies all of our logic. It's not that God can't be understood logically or rationally. He can, but at a certain point, the supernatural, the deity, the transcendent God is greater than our capacity to think it through. So our rationality only takes us to a certain place, and then it, it, it falls apart. At the same time, you can't just believe that and, and take it as an ex experience as the basis for faith because that's transitory and it's impermanent. What you know about today, what you've experienced at this point, is going to be different tomorrow. As I look at this room this morning, I am looking at the difference in experience from a year ago to this time. The room is... Can the preacher say the room's half full and y'all just nod and say, yeah, you're right? <laughs> it's different now. And if my faith is based on my experience, even something like this could be an earth, faith-shattering quake in your life, in my life. So existentialism experience can take you only so far before the experience changes or goes away or we understand it differently, or whatever, because it's impermanent. So relying on either one of these doesn't really get us where we want to go. What we want, however, is to take the words like Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of Mark's gospel, in verse 15, when he says, The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is new. Let's read the last part together. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Let's do it again. Repent of your sins and believe... The good news. There's a couple things going on here. Jesus says, you're going to have to turn your life into a different direction. We often say in 180 degrees, and, and that's fine. It's a good metaphor. 
But just turning around isn't all that's involved here. When we think about repentance, when we think about changing our minds, what we're doing is we're not only saying, I'm going to stop doing these things over here that I know are bad and wrong and ungodly and unrighteous and, and, and that's good. But it also means that I've made a new promise. I've made a new allegiance to a new leader. That's that repent part of it. Then he goes on, he says, I want you to believe in something. And that word believe there, pistuo, means faith, belief, commitment, loyalty, fidelity. All of those related terms are built into that. He says, I want you to have loyalty, fidelity, semper fidelis to the gospel, the news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to save us from our sins. So essentially what has happened here is we've been called to a transformed trajectory that our lives are going in an entirely different direction, turned around, away from sin, toward repentance, and a commitment to a new leader. It is as if we have pledged allegiance not to a flag or even to a constitution, but to Christ. I, uh, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about Semper Fidelis, and just made my mind think about military and all that kind of thing. And um, I can't help but remember and, and have a burned into my mind picture of my first child, my first son, standing in a room with about 40 other terrified kids, holding up his right hand in front of a man in a uniform looking like, oh my gosh, I could never be like that. And the man said words and had those children, those boys and girls, repeat those words and, sh and make their faith and their fidelity and their oath to the Constitution, to their country, to one another to something so much bigger than they were. And they didn't even know what all that was going to be. And I think about that. Sorry about that, y'all. And then I imagine all those times that I've gotten to stand right here in the middle of this room, not even that long ago, and stand there with some folks who in front of us, their family, who love them, and hear them make their oath, make their public statement of fidelity, of faith to Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. Our oath, our fidelity, is to something arguably much greater uh, than our country. Both are extremely important. But your salvation rests on the oath you make to Christ. Repent and believe the good news. We pledge our faith, our loyalty, our commitment to Christ when we make that statement in public and when we live our lives in such a way that that faith is lived out, that it's experienced and expressed in everything that we say and everything that we do. And so faith is more than just belief. In a word, faith is fidelity. So if it helps you to think about faith as more than a, simply a set of, of beliefs, it is your beliefs put into action. Because faith 
has to be active. Our faith has to be at work. In James chapter 2, there's that passage in there that just frustrates people no end because theologically they're going, well, wait a minute, is it faith or is it works? And that's just a, it's a poor contrast because they're not disconnected. In fact, they're tightly connected. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, James is making his argument. He says, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. There's a thing in our world these days called stolen valor. Are you familiar with that term? Stolen valor is where someone pretends to be uh, military or former military. They wear uniforms. They may even go and buy uh, citations, medals, badges to put on these uniforms, and they pretend to be something they're not. It's actually against the law. It is at the very minimum the most dishonorable thing that someone can do. And when we say that we have faith, when we express that this is a thing in our lives, but it's not backed up with how our lives are lived, it's very similar to a stolen valor, isn't it? It's one thing to put on a uniform or to plaster a big sticker on the back of your truck that says Semper Fidelis. Or to get a tattoo of a globe and an anchor on your arm. That's one thing. It's another thing altogether to put your life on the line with your brothers and sisters who have made the same pledge you have. And to live that out every day. It's one thing even to come into a building like this and sit down and listen to the songs and the prayers and hear the preacher talk and get up and walk out. But if there isn't a transformation not just from those moments, but into our lives. It's very much like stolen valor. We're pretending to be something we're not. This is what James is getting down to. He says, how do you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. Faith is belief plus action. It's, 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 it's an understanding. It's an experience. It's all those things together. But it's greater than that. It is a transformation of our lives from who we are to who Christ intends for us to be. And that happens as we move through this life actively and doing things. If you've been with us these last several weeks, then you have perhaps begun to caught some of the theme that's going on here. We've talked about things like our battle. And from Ephesians chapter 6, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces, the evil forces in the in the spirit realm. That's who we're in the war against. Because we have made that allegiance, we pledged our faith and our fidelity to Christ. We are now opposed to the evil forces of the spiritual realms and we are in a battle with him. You may have heard me talk about the message, the euangelion, the gospel, the good news that is ours to share with the world. That is what we are promoting. That is the land, the people that we are trying to take back for Jesus. You've heard me talk about our mission. The mission given to us by Christ, as it's recorded there in Matthew 28 and other places, go, therefore, to all the nations, all the ethne, all the people. Make them into disciples of Jesus. Teach them what I've taught you. 
Baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make them unified, not only with you, but with Him. Do you hear all of that? All of this works together. All of this takes faith. It takes fidelity, loyalty, commitment. It takes all of us picking up the battle cry for ourselves and not taking anything away from the Marine Corps but it's for us to take up the cry, Semper Fidelis, for the sake of Jesus. Faith works. Let's pray, church, and then we'll sing a song together. Father, it's a big motto, a big pledge to say that we will always be faithful, ever loyal, to Christ and for myself and perhaps for all of us there are days when I am not so faithful and loyal as I should be and want to be forgive me forgive us build in us father this faith we ask for it in the name of Jesus a kind of loyalty and commitment that demonstrated in everything that we do that our faith is demonstrated by our actions in the world to take the mission of Jesus, to take his good news, and to, 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 to get back everything that's been lost. We acknowledge that as our mission. We will give our lives to that mission ever faithfully. In Jesus' name, and we say, amen. Would you stand?